This is interview or interview with Luke Williams, an incredible visionary artist in his time. We're going to do this interview a little differently. Uh, it'll be more call and response questions. But I will start out with thanking you for your uh, cooperation. Of course. Process. I'm happy to. And I would like you to uh, explain to me artistically. What is it you do? What do you have interest in? What are your practices? Oh, I, well, mm, I guess I'm a musician. I play a lot of music. Um, and um, I come from a background... When I was in high school, I thought I was going to be like a painter or a graphic designer. So I did art kind of like art class, art school stuff all the way up until I graduated high school. Um, but at the end of high school, I got a little bit more serious about music. Um, and um, I had played music since I was a little kid. But um, I was, re I still am really bad at a lot of the like... Mm, at reading music, essentially. I'm not very oh. good at the, like, page, on-the-page musical stuff. Um, so, uh, I decided to go to college and study uh, English rather than music because I thought maybe, like, being a better writer mm. would, like, sort of... In it. I loved reading, and I, I, I thought maybe, like being a better writer would kind of be like an adjacent way to study the kinds of things I wanted to do with music, which at that time was like writing folk songs. That's like what I wanted to do. So I was like playing acoustic guitar shows and writing sort of like bad, like singer songwriter -y, kind of like John Mayer-like oh, yes. influenced uh, like acoustic music. And I thought I wanted that writing would help. Um... So I didn't study music, I went and st or art, I studied that. Um, and then, uh, I think like a lot of people who study, who go, like do humanities stuff, I just ended up with all this like critical theory that I never like bargained for, like entering that, that kind of became, uh, you know, I, I think it's like this sort of cliche about what happens when you study that stuff is that like mm. you, you, you get excited about like, um, form and, you know, <laughs> and then, and then you start being like, wait, I don't want to like, why am I playing the acoustic guitar? And, and like what is singer songwriter music and how's that situated and all this other stuff I like and like why did I think pop music sucked and uh. um so, <laughs> so I think I, that like but I don't even know why I answered your question in this way you I'm just telling you about how I got here I guess I love the way you're answering okay so, so then I tried to teach myself code. I made some weird albums. I got, made some like sort of conceptual albums of music. I started, 
Okay. At the end of school, at the end of my, uh, like, undergraduate, I kind of launched into two projects that I feel like this is where the story gets, like, pertinent. Um, I started writing this, like, funk album that was all about this guy named Thomas James, who was a real person in the 1600s who was trying to find the Northwest Passage. He was like a captain of a ship. And he was this, he wrote a book and I read, I read the actual, like a PDF scan of the actual book that he wrote, which is like the S's look like F's and stuff. It's like actually hard to read. And, um, but yeah, it was fascinating because like he's, this is autobiography. It's sort of journalistic. But it becomes really apparent really early on that he's a totally unreliable narrator of his own story. Um, He's like a megalomaniac and he's sort of like, um, but, but he's not that it, it, there's just all these weird holes in his story and it's, it becomes apparent that like he's making some really bad decisions and that his crew is not that happy with the decisions he's making and like, but it's all written in this. So I got really obsessed with this guy and I started writing this sort of like funk album, uh, like a sung by him sort of. So I, I went in this really weird conceptual way, but there was like very poppy, um, with that. And then at the same time, um, I had been really obsessed with this band called The Books. Do you know The Books? Yeah. Yeah. The Books are like, um, one of, I, like a really foundational band for me. And Mm -hmm. the first few years I was listening to them, I just kind of loved it. It, Like uncritically and unlike probingly. Mm -hmm. I just fell in love with it. And then at a certain point I realized that like, um, I had no idea how that music was made or like in a process kind of way if like I I was like I keep I think I'm a musician but whatever I'm doing to make music is like a different world than whatever they're however it is that they're constructing music I don't even understand how these songs are put together Mm. um I um at that point yeah I had been working, I had been recording my own music since I was like 16. Wow. My older brother, when he was a little older than that, got an internship at like a local nonprofit sort of like art and tech place that like teaches kids how to do stuff like record music and do graphic design and stuff. So um, he went there and he got a copy of Pro Tools and like a little recording interface. And so my older brother and I started like, had a little microphone and we started recording stuff. But we were just like recording little folk songs and stuff. And then, so, so I had these tools and I had this sort of knowledge of a certain way of using some of that software. But at the same time that I started writing the Fair Mariner album, I started making this album where... Uh, I went down to Southern Utah to the University of Utah's like field research station out in the desert. And I spent a week there like hiking around and recording myself improvising just like out on a field recorder. Um, And then when I came back, when I came back, I like took all of that sound and using a couple of 
kind of procedural rules, like made a big album with it. And the rules were that I couldn't use any like significant amount of any significant length of harmonic content that I had improvised. So I had to sort of take all that sound and like cut it up and make songs out of it as though it were field recordings of like a a bird or something else. So that was the rule is that like, I, I, so I was sort of like getting granular with bits of it and then like reconstructing songs out of it. And, um, that was the beginning of like, those two things are like still the two things that I'm exploring is that that kind of like cut up, um, like raw material composition that you still see. That's like also really pop. It's like on YouTube. There's people who like, look at this song I made with watermelon hitting a watermelon sounds and there's videos like that that get like millions and millions of hits and stuff yeah it's kind of like a it's become it's taken on like a a life that style of composition um there's a couple of youtube people like andrew huang and there's a couple others um uh those people usually what they're doing is like, how can I get a kick drum sound and a snare drum sound out of these objects and then make like a hip hop beat? That's like kind of the pattern. It's like, how can we make like an electro beat Uh out of this found material, which is not something I've ever done, Uh but is like also interesting. Um, I'm not really interested in making it. I think it's kind of, one time I was on tour with Jesse mm-hmm. Quebman Turley, who's amazing, and we were in a bathroom in a like road stop, and the hand dryer when it came on, if you like put your hand in a certain way, you could make these like really bassy thumping sounds, oh, wow. and then some really like hissy snarey sounds, oh. and I was doing it, and my immediate first reaction was like. <laughs> kind of thing and Jesse with the hand dryer and Jesse was like Jesse was like of course you go straight to a like like uh sort of sample like hip-hoppy drum beat which is what everybody does when they start making drum sounds is like how can I make this right into a hip-hop drum kit which is cool but he like called me out on it and I was like oh yeah not everything has to be has to be like boom bop right. all the time. Wow. Um, anyway, point is that's sort of my process in all. Like I like things that are. That's like the where my aesthetics are. I think still it's like I like things that are like funky and groovy and and uh, that's sort of what I grew up listening to too. And it's like okay. folk and then like. Like uh, Marvin Gaye and like yeah, um, but then I I I've like gone really far down this rabbit hole of sort of like sampley kind of booksy found mm. found material kind of composition. Mm. Nice. Um, you've covered a lot of my introductory questions just with that one answer. Yes. Winning! 
Um, how has your process evolved over the years? Um, well, certainly that there's been a huge, huge change in the last year of my life. Um, because I, um, I never, I think people always told me and probably you, I had always heard people that I respected say like, you should really be like working on what you're doing every day and like yeah. at a set time doing like, you should have a schedule and that like, mm -hmm. Um, there's a sort of like mythology of like inspiration that's I think actually kind of ultimately unhelpful mm. and like working against that by having a strict schedule and like like treating your creative work like work and mm. and like putting the time in mm -hmm. I'd always kind of heard that and never done it um, <clears throat> I think my process before I moved to Spain was very like, I'll write when I want to write and stuff comes to me and I'll chase it. But I wasn't too worried about it. And then when I moved to Spain, I started these two projects. <coughs> um, one of them was the Patreon mm. where I have to put something out every month, mm -hmm. which makes for this really nice, nice monthly deadline. Mm -hmm. And then the other was the GIF scores. Which are every day. So I have to make something every day, and then I have to make this bundle every month. Wow. And um, that has, like, really um, changed my process a lot. Um, I'm going to... There's another anecdote about Jesse, which is that... <laughs> Um, when I was living in St. Louis, I had this phone conversation with Jesse where he talked about how he was, like, putting out new pieces every week. And I had been working on this one album for, like, a year and a half at that point. And so he challenged me to write faster, and I challenged him to write slower. Oh. Um, and, uh, he, so he, he was like, he told me I had to make an album in a week, <clears throat> which I did. And I told him that he had to work on a piece for a year, which he didn't. Oh, so I won that competition. But now, in 2016, that was like 2014. And now in 2016, that has totally happened. Where I'm like, my production has become really snappy. Mm -hmm. And um, there's like positives and negatives to that, I think. Yeah. I don't think I can sustain this forever. And I also think there's projects you can do in longer time spans that I'm not doing because I'm, like, mm. in this more rapid schedule. And Jesse is, like, doing these really slow, like, long-term compositions now, which oh, wow. is exciting. So we've switched places. <laughs> yeah. With a little um, nudge from yeah. each other. Yeah, exactly, which is great. So you lived in Spain? When yeah. and why? Mm. So, um... In 2014, I moved to St. Louis to hang out with Blair, who's my partner, who's Sweet. super brilliant, and who also has a 
has had a huge, huge influence on the kinds of things that I am excited about and the kinds of things I make. Um, but, so I moved, she was doing her master's in St. Louis and I moved there to hang out with her for her third year. And then she graduated and we both had this year to kill before she wanted to move to, before she wanted to apply to PhDs. Mm -hmm. Um, and we were just talking about what to do with the year of our lives and we didn't really want to move back to Utah because we both felt kind of stagnant there. We didn't really want to stay in St. Louis. So we found this program where you could go to Spain, to Madrid, and get certified to be an ESL, a TEFL teacher, teaching ESL there. And then we went over on student visas so we could stay for a year. Um, and we took some Spanish classes and taught English for a year there in Madrid. Yeah, it was fun. It was really, really great. Um, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, it was amazing. It's definitely it. It um. It was very like lonely. Um, but a part of it's that's a part of the reason that I like stepped up my productivity because my schedule for quite a while in Madrid was basically like on the weekdays I would wake up. Uh, and then work on, like, creative stuff until 1 or 2, and then go to work until I get home at, like, 10.30, and then I go to bed and do it over again. So I really did have these, like, two part-time jobs, and I wasn't, you know, I think I make, like, 40 bucks a month on Patreon, so it's not like it's, like, a viable source of income necessarily, but I was working, like, 20 or 30 hours a week at it, which I'd never done before. Oh. I didn't really like make friends or like <laughs> Hit my the town? right. My Spanish is not as good as I thought it would be coming back from a year in Spain because also the Spanish lifestyle is like so nonstop, like uh, pedal to the metal. And I like I could I was never even when I was nineteen and twenty I couldn't really have kept up with it. And definitely when I was 25, 26, I was just like, count me out. What do you mean you stay up until 6 a.m. every weekend? Um, that's just what they do. Like, Friday, you get off work and the you go out, and then the metros close at 1, and they don't open again until 6. So if you're out past 1, you got to stay up till 6 so you can take the metro home, and then you bring your friends home, and you keep partying, and maybe you go to bed at, like, noon on Saturday. Then you wake up at like six on Saturday and you do it again. Uh, and then Sunday is just like a wash and then you go back to work on wow. Monday. That's what like everybody, that's like the, the sort of national uh, schedule. <laughs> um, so I felt kind of disconnected. I didn't really, yeah, but musically it was great. Yeah. <laughs> I like made a lot of stuff. A lot of inspiration there. I've tried to... I've wondered that. I almost... Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I never... The music that was happening in Madrid wasn't that exciting to mm -hmm. me. I never found music there that I was excited about. Um, when we traveled, 
we saw some stuff like in northern Spain that was more interesting and some stuff in like Sevilla. They have like places where the like flamenco tradition is kind of still Mm. exciting. There's people doing some cool stuff. Flamenco is just an incredible, incredible form. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely agree. So de- I've, I've, um, the, I felt inspired. I don't think any of the stuff that I made there is very Spanish. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. like I wasn't, I wasn't taking in. I think it, it was in. It, it, it was productive because I had a schedule that allowed for a bunch of time to work on stuff. Um, and I'm, I did a bunch of like sampling of Spanish language radio and stuff that was exciting, but, but, but as far as like really diving into, I didn't like learn how to play flamenco guitar or, um, and, and I actually, I'm not I was going to say I regret that. But I, I think, I think maybe that's kind of like a romantic idea that you would like, like, go to a place and sort of be, I mean, I don't know, maybe not. That's just wasn't my experience. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. My experience of Spain was very like, wow, I'm alone and I have a lot of time mm. to myself. Mm. Uh so that was productive. I don't know if it was like inspiring mm. in in a in a sort of way that was like directly right made its way into what I was making. Not like a Spanish way. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, how have you dealt with fear in your art making, or actively deal with it? Hmm. Um, is, is insecurity the same as fear? Is that like, are you asking about? Yeah, I would consider that. That's actually probably what I'm asking. Okay. Yeah, how do you deal with insecurity? I'm not like making horror movie soundtrack. (laughs) 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 I don't think so. Um... I think some of my, although, although some of my, some of my cut up stuff, um, uh, like, Blair will sometimes listen to it and tell me that it's scary. I don't ever think that it's scary, but maybe it, but that's not what you're asking about. Uh, I think that... Probably in a lot of the just like boring, like, like artsy ways that people feel bad about self-promotion. And I'm not like a, I'm not a networker. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of, you know, like we were talking about before the interview started about like being sort of afraid that what you're doing isn't important mm-hmm. or it, uh, Yeah insignificance like the sort of 
there's there's this sort of like self-perpetuating loop of horror between like like I don't deserve to make money doing this mm. and then also when I do feel like I deserve to make money doing it being sort of not having the like confidence to to follow through or charge what I'm worth or mm. like um but I think that's that's feels like not unique to me. I feel like all my most of my friends that make stuff deal with all that all yeah. those same insecurities. I don't really know um very many people who are like have have sort of figured out a healthy relationship with with that stuff. Um I think lately There's there's two kinds of like fear of irrelevance. There's a fear of well, there's more than that. But there's the fear that like art in general is irrelevant, which is like not true but insidious and mm-hmm. like um there's the fear that what um what I make not that art is irrelevant, but that my art is irrelevant, right? <laughs> um Yeah. And I think a part of that, sometimes I have conversations with people who, like, knew me early college or high school, and they're like, they're like, do you still have copies of that, like, sad breakup folk album you made lying around? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't, actually. And, and they'll be, they'll, they'll, like, what are you doing now? What, like, I saw your, you, like, make video games or something? <laughs> like, like, totally uninterested. And some, sometimes I feel like, I wonder if, if I, I sort of like ruined myself by like getting excited about things that weren't singer songwriter music, but I also like, that's stupid. That's, that's not true. That's just a thing that that's like, I get, I had a conversation with someone that I used to play in a folk band with. And he was like, yeah, I just feel like you've, like, you're, like, in all these new realms and I can't even follow you there. I'm, like, so happy for you, but I just can't even, I have no idea what you're making anymore. And that makes me sad. So I think that's, like, I get afraid that, about, I don't know, that's, that's, makes me feel, like, I don't know if I'm making the right decisions or like if if I'm communicating why these things are exciting well enough interesting well I do have something to say about that great because I was introduced to your music before I met you mm. And just by listening to your music, it's not that I felt like, oh, I know him now, but I, I got a sense of like, wow, this is a really visionary musician. This is somebody who has a lot of original ideas in his think like literally putting them out. So I, I knew I would like you just because of that lens that I had on you. Like, oh, he has different ideas and he actually like practices them and, you know, like, um, I listened to that album you did with Luke and 
Stuart Wheeler, is that his name? Oh yeah, the Logan and Logan and I and Stuart and the tour that we did. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And particularly uh, that song Light in Me. Oh man, it really like knocked my socks off. <laughs> it's up. a great, great song. It was yeah. yeah. Yeah, like everything that I thought that not that I thought that I knew anything about like folk, but I I didn't realize that it could be so versatile. And when I heard that album, I was like, oh, it can. And yeah, that's sort of what that whole tour was about. Yeah. And to be totally fair, we had some extremely, like, uh, we had some influences that we were drawing on very heavily mm. making that music. Um, but yeah, the three of us, I mean, Stuart, like, is this incredible singer. In this very folk tradition. Mm. Um, and then Logan and I, I grew up listening to folk and, and, and like not, I don't know, folk means all sorts of things. I grew up listening to all kinds of acoustic music. Um, Logan, I think, didn't. Huh. But um, Logan has just heard everything and is a genius. So I don't know how he... L Logan's one of those people that can hear... Like, he just already knows what the folk idiom is, and he can pick up an acoustic guitar or a banjo and be like, "This is what it sounds like." And wow. he sounds incredible. He like he soaks up the vocabularies of different traditions just like immediately. So I don't know where that came from for him, but <laughs> but we both love. I think particularly there's a band called Power Dove, um, Power Dove, oh. who. Um, are like doing really, really, really exciting things with folk music where they'll have guitars and banjos on stage, but like, um, and they're singing songs that are often kind of sweet, mm -hmm. but they get really noisy and they they have a lot of kind of like children's toys Ooh. and they'll play, he, he'll like play the banjo with a fan or put a fan inside the banjo so that it's messing with the way that it sounds. And so that band is super, super inspiring as far as like, um, like exploring what, what folk can be in different ways. And then um, Sam Amidon is a really cool uh, like folk singer. And I think he's mostly kind of an adapter of old songs Ooh. in a really odd and interesting and exciting way. Um, and he works a lot with a composer named Nico Muley. And they have a collaboration that they did together on a song called Two Sisters um, that is this old traditional song that's like one of those really dark folk songs that has a lot of like horrifying kind of like this like uh remember I think he makes guitar picks out of someone's like a dead woman's fingernails and there's like drowning and there's a lot of like deep evil kind of like like old folk darkness in that song and uh but usually when you hear it performed it's like um really sweet sounding huh. and as far as I know that um, that sort of Nico Muley, Sam Amidon version of it is the first time I had ever heard anybody 
kind of take the horror of that source material seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do it in this sort of four-part thing where it, like, builds itself up and then becomes this like, horrifying monster and then kind of, like, like, uh, like self-immolates as a song. Um, it's amazing. It's a total... So... So between like Powered of, I think the three of us were listening to that this new Powered of album and Sam Amadon. Yeah, if you haven't heard Powered of, Powered of, check out their album Arrest. Um, it's really amazing. Is there any, probably not. Is there any relationship between Two Sisters and Parallel Sisters? Bright Whistles. Oh, that's an interesting question. Because that song on that album, like. You know, I I fell in just just fell into that <laughs> album and like yes, oh, I still haven't climbed out. <laughs> and every song I'm Thank like, you. ah, but that one song I'm like, whoa, this is so different right. from every other song. And I right. have been meaning to ask all right. of you, like, well, where did that come from? So, I guess if anybody ever listens to this podcast, well, Bright Whistles <laughs> is a band that I have with a recurring character now in this interview, Jesse. <laughs> And another person, Logan, who I went on that tour with, who are, like, my two best friends, and we make a lot of stuff together. And Jessica knows them. Um, I've somehow, like, swindled them into thinking that I'm worth playing music with, and now we make a bunch of stuff together. Um, They're geniuses. That's a question that you should ask Logan, because he wrote the words to that song. And I don't know if he was thinking about Two Sisters. Um... Uh, Parallel Sisters was this song that Bright Whistles, which is in general kind of a like fun poppy band. Mm. We kind of imagined the first time we ever played Parallel Sisters, it was a heavy metal song. Mm. That was the idea is that we would have this song where we like became different characters on stage. So we would, we, we did a costume change on stage for that song where we put on different clothes and then we reintroduced ourselves as a heavy metal band and played that song and then, and then took the clothes off and went back to being Bright Whistles. Um, and then for the next... And then... Uh, I can't remember, I think that's the version that's on the album. Is the version that's like... And it's fun because it's like... it it. It's this really, really heavy, crazy song where Jesse's doing all this like double kick stuff, and then it has this really sweet breaks, like mm-hmm. vocal breaks in it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so what we started then, we played that a couple times, and then we realized that we could do the same thing but play it as like a country western song. So we played what? a couple shows that were like, oh that were like, um, how's that song even go? Um, wow. All I can think of is the newest version of it. I can't remember what the words to it are anymore. Um, but so we played it as like a country, and I, that was really fun and funny, and people liked it at shows. We did the same kind of costume change, but I think it. It started to feel like a kind of cheap, like genre parody. Mm. Um, 
like we had more ideas for it and then it, it was like are we just it stopped being exciting to think about like what other genres could we like shoehorn this these lyrics into um so the most recent version of it is we took all the same lyrics and just wrote an actual song that's like a cool song that we like and that's going to be like on the next kind of thing that we do we'll st- we'll definitely play that one at shows um when we start playing shows again so yeah but you should ask Logan about that because um I don't think that it's related but it's a it's a fun song <laughs> And it probably Girl. is in some, yeah, exactly. It probably is in some kind of unintentional way. Crazy. Yeah. I'll get back to the questions here. I, now that we're on Bright Whistles, I just want to talk to you all about Bright Whistles. What? <laughs> we'll get back to just you. Okay. Um, okay. Talk to me about dream artistic goals. Like, all you have the budget that you have always dreamed of, you have the time, you have the space. What are the things that you'll be creating? That's cool. That's I have this great book called, um, what is it called? The History of New Music. It's like a series of interviews with, um, with, like, avant-garde composers in the 20th century. And uh, at the end of all of those interviews, the guy who's doing the interviews, whose name is Ulrich, I think. Great name. Um, he always asks them, do you have any um, unfinished or unrealized projects? Mm-hmm. And most of the time, these are, like, composers in their 80s, 70s and 80s, or he's talking to, like... He's talking to, like... A couple of them are like with craft work. He talks to craft work and he talks to like yes. Brian Eno. Um, wow. But, but like when he interviews Zanakis, mm-hmm. Zanakis, I think that's, I don't know how to say that guy's name. He's like this, this like architectural composer guy. He's like an older guy at that point. And so he's asking about like, is there any like, it seems like, uh, is, and it's, the, it's like a similar question. If you had all the means and all the resources, mm-hmm. like what would you finish? I don't know. Um, I think... So one of... Yeah, I don't know how to... Are you asking like... Should I give you an example? Yeah. Okay, like for me... All the money, the time, the resources, I would uh, start a production company and I would produce music videos mm. for artists that I know and then cool. thin videos for artists that Amazing. obviously don't know, know me, you know. So here's my question. Why can't, why, why can't you do that now? Yeah. Uh, fear, insecurity, and the, uh, the notion that I've hit my, hypnotized myself into believing that... Um, because I don't have resources, I can't do it. Right. Well, I mean, I guess partially that's true, right? Like, you can't, you couldn't, like... But it's also not true, because, like, I have a phone. I could, right. you know, record anything on my right. phone. Right, You know, right. maybe, like, 20 years ago, that could have been an excuse, but... Right. Yeah, those yeah. means of production are, like... Mostly it's just fear. Yeah. And insecurity. You should do that. Um, you, sh- Yeah. 
We should, uh, you should make a Bright Whistle video. That's oh, like... that, that idea is already underway. Great. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Good. Given by Jessica Lee, who's also another amazing yeah. interviewer. Um, but yeah, we yeah. talk about that. Okay. Okay. So all the time, money in the world. Um, I think. I I guess I feel. I I don't feel like there are necessarily things I wish I could do where the thing that's holding me back is money. Beyond, beyond like, if I didn't have to pay rent, I could stop teaching and just do music. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, you know, there, there's like time constraints that are put on me by the fact that I have to like work and, and make rent right. in other ways because my music doesn't support me. Um, yet. Yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I, you know, maybe the way to answer it in a sort of roundabout way this question is that I've actually been wondering lately if, if having my music support me is a reasonable slash productive goal to have. Um, partially because I really like my teaching job. I don't mind doing what I do. Um, which is teach ESL in Los Angeles. Um, I really like that job. Um, the ways that I am making money through music right now is mostly film score stuff, which is really fun. Um, I would probably make like like between zero and five hundred dollars a month doing film scores, um, and uh, that's like fun I really like doing that work so I've had this dream for a while that that could become the thing that supports the kind of more personal projects Mm. um but um and I also do that with Jesse and Logan (laughs) (laughs) just to show you how insular my creative life is has become um but yeah we we do film score stuff together um but yeah i feel good i feel i mean i wish i had more time to like learn how to code better Mm. um i do some code stuff and i'm really bad at it like i'm making this website for a friend right now that's kind of an interactive version of one of his music pieces and that's actually the first like like code thing I've ever gotten paid to do, which is really yeah, fun. Hmm, who knows? That's our friend Alex <laughs> Wand, who has a band called Desert Magic. And this website's probably going to be up by the time anybody would ever listen to this. Uh, and it'll be at danceoftheplanets.com. And it's a cool, like, like interactive visualization of this piece he wrote that takes the orbital speeds of the planets and maps them to tempos of guitar loops. And it's really beautiful. So I'm helping him make this website and like, I'm so bad at code that I've spent the last two days, three days straight fighting with this like really simple thing that I'm positive is not difficult, but I'm just terrible at it. So like, 
I wish I had. I wish I had a bunch of money and resources to like go back to school. Hmm. That's what I'd do. Oh. If I had all the money and time in the world, I'd go get like four more undergraduate degrees. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. That's what I'd do for sure. Wow. One being in computer science. Computer science, um, visual art, like printmaking probably. Oof. Visual art. Um, uh, I think like... Um, Right when I was leaving school, I was really sad that I hadn't studied geology. I'm really into geology. And I, I, I did this, like, interdisciplinary, like, kind of BS science degree that was called environmental studies, where you, like, took classes all over campus. And basically all that did was make me, like, really excited about biology and wish I had studied biology and then make me really excited about geology and wish I had studied that. So, um, and I kind of came away with it with this, like, very, very thin, broad understanding of lots of things and wishing that I had been able to... My grandmother was a geologist. Cool. The one who had dementia. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. um, Did she work for the, like, oil companies? No, she was a teacher. Oh, cool. Yeah, she studied it, and then she became a teacher. And, cool. And then it was, you know, hobby and things right, that she right. you know, visited and collected. Awesome. And, yeah. So cool. The best people. Those she's are the so best many people. Rocks. Oh my gosh. So many rocks. That's so cool great. Rocks too. That is the downside of of studying geology is that I mean, like, teacher is an excellent thing to be, but I think most people end up kind of having to like go work for the oil companies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which is kind of a bummer. Yeah. Um, what artists inspire you? Hmm. Uh, um, I think there's like, there's, there's sort of, I get excited about people in this kind of day-to-day way, Hmm. where, like, um, I found this woman today. Can I use your computer to look up her name? Yes, but I don't think I have the one. Oh, you sure don't. I found this woman today who is a jazz harp player. Oh, what? Um, And I listened to her album, and, like, I freaked out. I completely freaked out. Um... Uh, I, I'm going to find her name so that I, I'm not just, uh, pointing you toward nothing. Um, so there's this kind of day-to-day way that I, like, will get, will find something and get really excited about it, um, and, and it'll kind of stick around for a while or not a while. And then there's a sort of like middle, um, is it Dorothy Ashby? I don't think that was her. Um, dang it. Hold on. I'm going to grab my computer so that I, uh, while I'm gone, Jessica, tell your listeners a story. Uh, this is a story about, oh, he's back. That was 
a shitty story. I know. I only got three words in. Um. Okay. The point is, I don't know why I'm like hedging about this question. This is a great question. <laughs> um. Uh, so many people. I think that's the problem. You've already mentioned um, a couple. Maybe this is sort of a redundant question. Well, I guess it depends on... Right, the books were really foundational. If I'm talking about music, the books were really foundational. James Brown was really foundational. There's a singer-songwriter guy from the 80s whose name is Greg Brown, hmm. who's very foundational for me. Um... He's like, he, he's sort of, he recently got, uh, uh, was a part of this compilation, or not a compilation, this sort of weird project by Anais Mitchell, who's a singer-songwriter. I think that's her name. Oh, I'm just like butchering random people's (laughs) names. This is great. Anais Mitchell. Yeah, that is her name. Great. Okay, so she did this project that's like a retelling of the of this Greek tragedy Orpheus was it Orpheus Hades Town that was Hades Town was this um yeah the Orpheus myth oh man I'm like I'm getting things right actually so (laughs) she did this thing and she like hired a bunch of people to play all the characters on this album that she made that was kind of like a musical an imagined musical about this like setting of this Greek myth and she hired Greg Brown to be the, like, um, Hades character. And when that uh, happened, my dad, who is, like, a folk musician also, and I, uh, uh, he was like, they just hired Greg Brown because they couldn't get Tom Waits. Oh. Um, because Greg Brown also has this very deep very, like, husky, gravel-filled voice. Um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, so there's there's a Greg Brown album called The Live One that, like, I've listened to probably... It was one of those albums that we just played in the car over and over and over and over again growing up. Um, code-wise... The people that have been inspiring me lately are this incredible, incredible artist named Katie Rose Pipkin. She's so cool. She's at, I think, University of Pittsburgh right now, maybe, doing a bunch of incredible work. And she makes these, like... uh, She kind of started in code making bots, Mm. Twitter bots, Mm -hmm. which is also kind of how I got excited about Twitter bots. But she does these things where she takes, like, Unicode characters, um, which are, like, the the sort of non-Latin characters that your computer knows how to display. Mm-hmm. Um, so characters from other languages. Unicode's a big table right. of, like, like, strings of numbers that your computer interprets as right. a letter. And so then if like, you switch fonts, your computer knows what to display because at the root it has this, like, identifier that says this is the lowercase a. So Unicode is this table of sort of things that your computer can display. And she'll take, like, all of the symbols in Unicode that look like they could be stars and then have a bot that kind of randomizes this little field of stars and then it tweets every few times a day in these little star fields that are really beautiful. Or like... Um, 
So she does stuff like that. She makes these amazing video games. Um, and she's a really brilliant writer. Um, there's a game, a video game called Kentucky Route Zero. Wow. That's about this like imagined highway underneath Kentucky that's also like maybe magical. It's like a sort of non-space and it's this really great kind of odd narrative game that's really beautiful and that's been really inspiring lately. There's a code, uh, a game maker named Jason Rohrer who made this really famous kind of like early art house game called Passage and he's really excited about this word that I just learned called ludonarrative and ludonarratology. So ludic means like relating to games and play. And, and so ludonarrative mm -hmm. is not, not when you impose a narrative on top of a game. Like for example, Mario. Mm -hmm. um, it, the, the Mario narrative is that like the princess has been captured and you have right. to save her. So there's this story in this game that, that is in no way told to you by the actual mechanics of playing the game. It's entirely a narrative that's imposed as a layer on top of the experience of playing the game, right? Oh. Um, so ludonarrative is the sort of, the sort of like interlinking, inter, interlocking intersection of narrative and mechanics of games. So an example of that is this Jason Rohrer game, Passage. Mm -hmm. you, all you can do is move right, mm -hmm. and it's this little pixely thing. You can just move right across the screen. Um, and you get older as you go to the right. So you start as a baby, and you're crawling, and then you get older, and at the end of the game, you die. Um, and so it just takes, like, three or four minutes to, like, walk all the way to the end. Mm -hmm. where you die. But along the way, there's some, like, little, like, things you have to go around. There's little, kind of, um, blockades and things. Nobody's really, like, attacking you. It's mm -hmm. not like a... It's, it's... But you also have the... Um, have, uh, along the way, these experiences, like, for example, you get married. <laughs> and, um, when you get married... All that happens is another little pixel person shows up. But now, you move together, and you take up two kind of blocks of game space rather than one. So there are blockades and things that are sort of presented to you that you are more difficult to oh. move past because you take up literally more, like game space. So that's an example of like, there's, there's all of this sort of, and maybe that one is a little bit on the nose. Mm -hmm. There's, it's like a little easy, but it, it's a, it's a pretty like, uh, a pretty clear example of a place where like, there's, there's some narrative that enters the game about like what a partnership is and like what like things that are difficult. There's there's some sort of like light narrative that happens. Complete that's that's the storytelling happens entirely via gameplay. 
Mm. Wow. Right? The actual mechanics of playing the game. So that's, so Jason Orr is super exciting. He thinks about that stuff. There's so many people. I don't know. Those are some people that are inspiring to me. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, when you daydream, what do you think about? I mean, lately... Huh. I'm, I'm not sure that I've been daydreaming very much lately. Hmm. I kind of think that... Um, I haven't been allowing myself very much, like, space to be bored in. Mm. Um, and, like, part of that is this sort of, like, everyone's always on their phones and their computers thing. Which is, like, in my case, totally true. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I, I have, like, taken some of that away from myself via, like, one like obsession with hyper productivity Hmm. and to like when I burn myself out Mm. like easy distractions um I think that I daydream most when I'm like silent and there is silence and I'm alone and I haven't given that to myself in kind of a while. My life's been pretty hectic for a while. Like, between moving and starting new jobs and and also the things I was mentioning earlier. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, this is like a sad answer to this question. I'm, I don't think I'm daydreaming very much right now. Mm. Going through a daydreamingless um, period? Yeah. And I don't think I'm night dreaming very much either. Oh, really? I used to, but I'm not. Um, in the past when you have, uh, night dreamed, yeah. have you recorded them? Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I got really into dreams and like I did, I was like into lucid dreaming for a minute oh, and wow. stuff. Have you ever done that? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I was like late high school, I watched that movie Waking Life. Have you seen that movie? Uh, yes. And like, I, you know, that's such a late high school movie mm-hmm. for me. It's such a like man, mm-hmm. like, yeah, <laughs> why aren't all movies just conversations, man? Mm. Um, yeah, so that, uh, so yeah, I did record my dreams for a while, I haven't in a long time. Mm. Uh, do you dance? Do you enjoy dancing? Mm-hmm. So, um, if you were to have a last dance on earth, last time you'd ever be alive and have a moment to dance, <laughs> what song would you dance to? Hmm. Hmm. That's an interesting question because if it's the last moment, this is like I it's it's a little bit bittersweet. Mm-hmm. So like usually my kind of like go to dance party jams are like like Caravan Palace do you know that band? No. This it's like French electro swing stuff so they play like Django Reinhardt ish like gypsy jazz but then their trombone player is like a DJ what? so I got to see them they're a cool cool band um, they have a whole like 
hot jazz like quintet on stage. Oh my god. But then but then they they're making this like this like pumping hot like club dance music. Um so that's on my iPod mm-hmm. for the sole purpose of like showing up at dance parties and and like yeah. uh inserting that into the mix. Love it. Also, I said that, like, I I actually think that's really rude when people show up at other people's parties and put on their own music. Really? That's, I don't have a practice of doing that. Yeah. Have um, you had bad experiences? Like, somebody killed the mood with trying to, or... Yeah, I, I think, I, think I, I, like... I, the better way to say it is I have that I, on my iPod in case of emergency in yeah. in uh in case it's needed yeah which Perfect. it which it sometimes is but <laughs> but i don't think that's what i'd want to dance to if it was my last dance song on earth mm-hmm. um i'd probably want to like like just like listen to tom waits and like hug blair mm that yes it can be but 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 yeah the this music that i like to dance to tends to be like either like um like michael jackson Mm. like the way you make me feel that's that's gotta be that's like my ultimate dance song i think mine's billy jean yeah yeah you know i love billy jean Mm -hmm. that is also i i feel i got annoyed that um you know those people who beatbox and then also sing at the same time? Like, they make these, like, throat sounds and yeah. they kind of beatbox. Um, there's this thing, I don't know why, but there's this thing, there's this, like, expectation mm-hmm. that, like, the only song available to prove your worth as a, like, beatboxer slash singer <laughs> is to be able to beatbox and sing Billie Jean at the same time. Oh. And, um, it's, 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 um, not, like, flattering <laughs> for anyone involved. <laughs> um, ever. Like, oh, even when it's good, it's just, I don't know why everybody wants it to be that song. I wouldn't um, but that's such a great song. Um, that's a great pick. For is that would that be your last? It would dance be song between um, Billy Jean and Staying Alive. Mmm. Classic. Yeah. So there'd be like, that's that's exciting. Yeah. Okay. We'd be very hyped. Yeah. Very, you know, Good. It's the last song I'm gonna do this, and then I'm gonna go all out. <laughs> Perfect. All right, I'll pick I'll pick Caravan Palace too then, just to like nice. be in the all out camp. Um, all right, now into the non-artistic questions. Cool. What would you consider your greatest, greatest accomplishment? Now, it could be, I got out of bed this morning. Yeah. It could be, I won a trophy at soccer when I was nine. Like, it, anything that you're proud of doesn't have to be success-related. It's an interesting time to ask that question, because we were talking before you turn the mic on about how we're both feeling like kind of dark. I think a part of the darkness that I'm feeling in this like, like 
hellscape dystopian post-election 2016 is like a lot of shame. Mm. I don't, I don't feel a lot of pride mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Like something that I did that I was proud of. I'm, I'm proud of, I, I'm, I'm, if I'm being honest with myself, I feel very proud of my hyper productivity. Mm. And I think that that's like a double-edged sword, but, but I feel, I, I like, I feel, yeah, I feel proud of like the, the amount of stuff that I've made in the last six months feels like an accomplishment that I'm proud of. What's the weirdest habit you have? Or most unusual? I don't know. The stuff I'm thinking of feels like really pedestrian habits. Like, (laughs) I always have too many tabs open on my computer. That's not a weird habit. That's just something that, like, everybody in 2016 does, probably. Do you open a lot of tabs? No more than four. Really? Yeah. Do you want to know how many tabs I have open on my computer right now? How many? One, two, three. 18. Okay. And that's like a good day. That's a really good day. Um, I don't think I've ever seen anyone have that many open. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it gets like, it gets to be a problem. Um, I just, I don't think I'm, I'm like a pretty normal... I don't do... I'm not that quirky, I don't think. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like... Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't like... Like, eat bananas with, like, spiced jam on it or something. I don't, I don't like, have fun. <laughs> I'm at a loss at this question, which makes me a little bit sad about myself. Is there, or maybe another question is, is there anything that you do in privacy that no one else really sees you do? Hmm. Or maybe that Blair doesn't even see you do? Hmm. You want an example? Yeah. Like, I like to pace around in a clockwise circle. Hmm. Always clockwise. Always clockwise. Counter just feels crazy. And I like to talk to myself. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's not necessarily like, hey, Jessica, how are you? It's more me talking through interactions. Yeah, totally. I do that too. Playing out things mm-hmm. or conflicts or mm-hmm. how, or sometimes I'll interview myself. Yeah. I I, I've definitely done that. Yeah. Definitely done that. Um, I think that... Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I actually think that recently I feel like more. I'm aware that more and more of my friends are people who like talk to themselves and pace. <laughs> and so I think maybe I've stopped categorizing that as a weird habit and just like yeah. something that lots of people who lots lots of people do that like. Everybody does privately, so so we don't sort of recognize that like right. most of the people you know like talk through interactions. I mean, I think there are people who don't do that. Right. 
And I think that you and I are both like, like on the, on the sort of spectrum closer to introversion, which, which I think also brings that out. Like anxieties about interactions and sort of like walking through things. But you're right. Definitely more people I tell that I do that, they're like, yeah, I do that too. And I'm like, well, maybe that's not so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Also, I, I like toast an invisible person when I eat something great. That's cool. That's a great, that's exactly the kind of quirkiness that I'm talking about. Um, I, there's like, I, I like do more like impressions and weird voices when I'm by myself than I do when I'm around. Like I like talking weird ways. That's That's, cool. I think I assumed that most people did that in private too. Do you do impressions of people you know? Definitely not. I'm really bad at that. Yeah. I, I, I I think I'm horrible. Really? I would not be good at that. Do you ever try? Or, like, if you hear something that's really pleasing, like an accent? Yeah, that's, it's more like that. If, because I think it's like, it's, it's just like a music game, Mm. almost. Like, if I hear somebody say something in a certain way, I'm pretty good at mimicking it. Yeah. Um, but, but I'm, I'm really bad at getting that, like, gestalt. Gestalt? That, that, like... (laughs) Really good impressions need to have. Yeah. Where you, like, capture the whole thing. Yeah. I can, like, mimic little bits and pieces of things, but... I agree with that. I do that. I do a lot of impressions. Yeah, you and Ryan are just, like... Yeah. Non-stop when you... When, which is so fun. <laughs> I've, I've never quite met a, like, dynamic duo of non-stop impressionists. Yeah. We're oddly in like the same, the same person. Yeah. But for me, impressions, it's like a term of endearment in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, if there's somebody that I know that speaks in a certain way and I spend a lot of time around them, I, I like relish my impression of them. And I <laughs> love so Like great. Alex, I have an impression of him. He's like, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> cool. You know? <laughs> like gestures and the way that he speaks. Yeah, you got it. You did. You got the gestalt. You did it. Um, best meal you've ever had, or a most memorable. Okay, this is this is probably almost doesn't count as an answer to this question. But the thing that came to mind immediately was it that counts. last this past New Year's, which is um, getting close to a year ago now. Blair and I went to Berlin, which is an incredible place. Um, And, but, so we were in Berlin over Christmas. There were just a lot of memorable food things. Like when you travel for a a year, and we weren't traveling for a year. We were very much based in Madrid. And then when we Mm -hmm. could like scrounge up some extra money, we'd do little trips. Um, but when you're, when you're like away from the like sort of food culture that you grew up from in for that long, there's like, like makes for lots of memorable food Mm. experiences, I think. (laughs) But so we, for, we, we didn't think ahead at all about how hard it would be to eat meals, um, traveling over Christmas in Germany. So we like did a lot of like angry wandering, (laughs) 
I'm like, uh, uh, but so we did find a place to eat um, on Christmas, but then we stayed in this really beautiful, like run-down kind of estate castle thing over New Year's that's like outside of Berlin. And we took a train out there and it was on this lake. And um, we were there over New Year's and it's really rural. And there were only two restaurants in town. There was a place, if you went to the estate, Mm -hmm. there was like this weird old, like totally uh, kind of barely not in shambles, like, dining hall. And then the people who ran the hotel would, like, make you dinner. So you could go there, mm-hmm. or there was, like, a halal, like, like uh, uh, Middle Eastern street food kind of mm. place. And then I think there actually was one more restaurant and one grocery store in this town. And on New Year's Eve, we realized that morning that... Or I think it was like maybe late morning, early afternoon that we realized that the dinner that night at the the sort of castle was like a fixed plate reservations only New Year's party that had been booked full for like since last New Year's when everybody bought their tickets for this New Year's. So we were not invited. <laughs> um, and... Um, so we were like, that's fine. We'll go get some food at the grocery store. And we went down to the grocery store and got there as they were closing for New Year's Eve. And um, so they were like, nope, can't buy anything here. So then the like Durum place was closed too. And then the other restaurant was also fixed plate. Thing that was also totally booked. So, at this point, we were like looking at our options and we had like half of a loaf of bread uh, and some like a cookie and like the, the end of a jar of jam. Um, and it was like, it was like 3 p.m. Oh <laughs> and uh, we hadn't really eaten lunch either. So, long story short, we ate the bread, it got later and later, we got really desperate, and then uh, the, we were like at the hotel, at the castle, so we were watching this party happen, oh, wow. um, and at a certain point, they like all went down to the lake to light out fireworks, and I was like... This is our shot. This is my chance. So I ran into the like banquet hall and just like grabbed the first thing I could find, which was like a plate of I I didn't even get a plate. I got like two of these big like German sort of custard filled donutty things. Wow. I walked in there and it was like just me and the DJ. <laughs> and we like made eye contact and I grabbed these two donuts. And ran back to the hotel, and we ate those, and then we were still super hungry. And then uh, we like 
finally got some food again the next day. It was really wow. intense. Um, wow. It was, it was like a very memorable meal. It was not my best meal, but it was the most memorable. Wow. What a great story. The Thanks. DJ is the only witness. Yeah. The donut he, he knew. <laughs> I think some, some of the like old German folks might have seen me walking back across the courtyard with some donuts, but I don't know if they, I don't know if they really knew what was going on. Wow. I knew the, that I had stolen their treats. Um, what were your hobbies as a child? Drawing and video games. Video games? Yeah, definitely. Any specific ones? Yeah, like so many. So we had a Super Nintendo. That was like the, the big thing. Um, my favorite games growing up were RPGs. So I really loved... Like, um, uh, you know, Final Fantasy games, games where you got to, like, be a wizard. Mm. It was, like, if I could be a wizard, I liked the game. That was, like, my <laughs> metric. Um, but, uh, so, so I played tons and tons and tons of video games growing up. Um, uh, our, my favorite video games, actually, interestingly, were not wizard video games. But they were RPGs. My two favorite video games, I think, now there's some, like, more recent stuff that gets added to that list. But of that era were um, Earthbound. Mm -hmm. Have you ever played Earthbound? Do you play video games at all? I, I still have a Game Boy. Cool. I play those games. Great. What games do you play on Game Boy? Uh, Super Mario Land, yeah. Super Mario Brothers, Wario Land. So great. Donkey Kong. So great. Alice in Wonderland. Whoa. That's a good game. That's uh, exciting. I did, I've never played Alice in Wonderland. It's cool, and it's got really trippy music, too. Nice. Nice. That's, like, maybe 40% of why I like video games is the music. Yeah, exact. Totally. So Earthbound is this incredible, like, like genuinely monumental for that medium, I think, game. That's, like, an, an RPG, so it takes all of these sort of, like, gameplay mechanics cues from those like knights and wizards type of games where you like have friends and you build up their stats and then you like play through and it gets harder and you like gain more team members and lose team members and there's a story that's very like um big, like narrative was really important to those games but um it's set in like this sort of alt suburban america hmm. um and it was made in Japan, so it's this, like, Japanese vision of suburban America. Wow. Um, and it's hilariously funny. It's just this, the, like, sense of humor of that game is still, I think, like, unmatched. Uh, and then it's, like, really bright and colorful in this video, the way that video games, like, rarely are. Yeah. And um, it's, like, a really special, different thing um so that yeah that that's like a really important video. so yeah my hobbies were like hanging out with my brothers uh singing songs with my family hmm. drawing playing video games did you play computer games too yeah yeah um, like heroes of might and magic 3 oh, more wizards more wizards. wizards yeah um what did you play computer games 
Yeah, really odd foreign video games. Cool. Like Liquid Kids. Never heard of it. It's like a little uh, platypus that shoots bubbles. Wow. Really crazy things. Again, Liquid Kids? Music. It's online. You could play it. And, that um, sounds incredible. Whoa, this looks so good. It's Oh, I'm great. definitely going to play this. It's great. It has like seven levels. And wow. they're all just so colorful and crazy and cool. cool. And then there's this other game that was is Japanese, and the main character is this little boy, and I think his name is Nemo, and it's about it's like Nemo's dreams or something. Awesome. And it was really intense. Awesome. Like really crazy, grotesque characters, but uh, it was easy to beat, and I would play it only so I could beat it and see the credits. <laughs> Because at the end, the very last line of the credits was see you again in your dreams. And I just loved seeing that as a kid. That's so cool. That's so cool, Jessica. Um, But I can't find that one. So so this is what I thought um, was going to happen, which is that... Nemo, was it called Little Nemo the Dream Master? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, there you go. Have That's you ever, it. so do you know the the source material for, material for Little Nemo the Dream Okay, speaking of inspirations, Jessica, holy crap, you're going to be so excited right now. What? Uh, I think this will be, this conclusion will be a great way to wrap up this interview, which has been incredibly enlightening, but has yet again left me with way more questions about about this incredible individual. Okay, so um, Windsor McKay was a really, really early, like, 20s, 30s-ish American cartoonist. Um, let me make sure I got those dates right. I don't know why I feel important. that's important. But yeah, like, 10s, 20s. Um, um, and... So, Little Nemo was an early, early American comic. This book is still wrapped in cellophane because we packed it up when we left St. Louis and then left it in Utah and just got it back out of its box moving here. So I haven't unwrapped this book again, but this is the most expensive book I've ever bought. This book cost $70. Oh, wow. It's an old printing a collection of Little Nemo comics. Um, so these were serialized newspaper comics in the, like, tens and twenties. And I think that you will, you're just going to freak out about this. This is a great example of, like, like, really early on in a medium when, like, there were no, there were no, uh, like, calcified ideas about what was supposed to happen in a cartoon or or a comic or like what they were supposed to be about or what the form was supposed to be. Um, So I know that this is boring for people who are listening, but just to give you a sense of what these comics are, imagine like a full newspaper page um, kind of height and width. And then the panels are generally very rectangular. Um, they're not doing a lot of like panel breaking, although every once in a while you'll get like a weird circle. Oh my god. Um, and the drawings oh my god. look 
I don't know if you've ever read that Maurice Sendak book, In the Night Kitchen. Maurice Sendak is the guy who did Where the Wild Things Are. Oh, no. And In the Night Kitchen is one of his other books where he kind of basically, like, copied this art style. Um, but, so Little Nemo is this boy in his bed, and every single comic starts with him... And, well, every single comic ends with him waking up. Every, they all start with him in his bed, but oh. they are usually he's... The dream has begun, oh. but he's in his bed. And then he goes on some kind of wild what? adventure, and then it, every single comic ends with him waking up from a dream. And that's the video game. Cool. That's... Oh, my God. Cool. Even well, yeah. these characters. So, I recognize. So, I feel like this particularly is like... In 2016, this would be like, wow, look at them, like, breaking the... This, oh, this, wow. like, this... So, there's one of the panels of this is, like, the box, the sort of bounding box of the comic panel has been, like, warped as a part of his dream. Um, and But this was just, like, nobody knew what comics were supposed to be, really, I think. So, like... The, the the form was sort of just starting to, like, be a thing. These sort of longer form, serialized newspaper comics. Um, and then the language is just incredible. So we just, like, I don't know. This one looks amazing. You should just read this one, Jessica. Oh, my God. This is... Wow. Yeah. So I bought this... Um, for Blair for her birthday one time, and it's it's definitely like one of my prized possessions is this book, and I never knew that there was a video game, Jessica. So now you have to read this book, and I have to play that video yes, game. Yes, yes. And if you find that video game, you have to tell me where to find it. Okay. I just loved it. Awesome. Loved it. Awesome. Oh my god. Yeah. So this is Little Nemo. In, in pajamas, too. Like, this is amazing. Yeah. Well, and after all your questions about night dreams and daydreams and stuff, I feel like this is a very fitting conclusion. Yeah. Look wow. at these mermaids. Oh, my God. Yeah. A little cat. <laughs> well, well, yeah. this is a really great place to end. Thank you so much for bearing Thanks. your soul and your artistic process and being an amazing person. Thanks, Jessica. This has been this is fun. The interview of <laughs> Luke Williams. I, mean, I think this might be the longest interview that I've done. Uh oh.